you know, with the the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, among many others, the, the country came to this flashpoint of of awakening that racism is not a past experience, but a lived experience from, you know, for, for black and brown people. Um, there was so much energy and, and, and movement around real change. And then, you know, white people strike back. It, it, it came in the form, as you were alluding to uh, just moments ago, these anti-critical race theory, uh, theory champions, the, the removal of certain events from history books, um, and white people doing what white people do. Um, but I, I don't want to focus on these white people. There are many, and I would include myself in this group, that want to be part of bringing about racial equity to our world but maybe don't realize they still have a bias towards black and brown neighbors. Can you give us an insight into some of the most common forms of unconscious bias to this subset of white people? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hill, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to on an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlord, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University's School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704 704- 406-3205 and visit gardner-web.edu. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Terrence Lester. He is the founder of Love Beyond Walls. He's authored several books, including When We Stand. He is a community activist for racial equality and an advocate for those experiencing homelessness. Terrence, welcome back to the conversation. It is great being back, my friend. How's it going? 
You know, it's uh, it's a wild ride these days, but it's going good. I'd rather it be wild than boring. So <laughs> wild than boring. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I definitely can relate to uh, life being wild. I don't know if you know, but last year around this time, I could not walk. Oh. Uh, in May of yeah yeah May of May fourteenth twenty twenty two, my wife and I were um, we were out for dinner. We were actually celebrating an award that our organization had received, and we left dinner. My wife uh, was driving. I fell asleep in the passenger seat, and I woke up on the ground with EMT surrounding my body, uh, and I. I black out and I wake up again and I look up at a mangled car. Uh, I was rushed to the hospital and uh, I had to have two emergency surgeries and I was rendered, uh, you know, unable to walk. Uh, so after surgery, the, you know, the physician tells me, you know, it's going to be a while before you can walk again because uh, the car accident uh, crushed my hip and my pelvis. And so I spent a month in the hospital and after I discharged from the hospital, uh, multiple months in agony and pain, unable to walk, move around. And, you know, by the grace of God, uh, I was able to learn how to walk again, uh, get back up in the shorter time frame than they had actually allotted me. So they were saying about a year, year and a half and uh, by God's grace, I was able to do it in six, but shortly after that, uh, I went through a whole series of just trying to heal and recover. Uh, and so when you say, wow, my friend, I mean, life comes at you fast. Um, but, uh, I think one of the things that kept me and my family close knit or closely knit and together during this time was our, our faith. So, mm. Yeah. Well, there goes the question of what's been going on the last year and a half since we last talked. Um, that's, um, I'm sorry to hear that, but I'm also so glad to hear that the recovery is going well. And yet in, in all of this time, you've managed to write another book. I mean, wh how, how how are you getting through all this? How, how are you doing this all together? You're, you're, you're like holding the world together and, and producing all this good work at the same time. <laughs> Yeah. Um, honestly, I've, I've done it, uh, with, with grace, uh, being an anchor I've done it with, uh, having, you know, a, a very supportive community, but also I had to make a lot of mental shifts. Um, one of the things that I really wrestled with when I was unable to really move, move around and walk was, I realized how much I had connected my sense of worth to mobility. I mean, you think about it. I do work in an organization that requires me to be mobile. I've been mobile my entire uh, life, my childhood, my adult life. Everything that I've basically done has been centered around this idea of worth. And when that was taken away, I was left to wrestle with these really uh, hard uh, questions like, who am I? You know, what is the calling of God on my life? How do I contribute to the world um, that is in many instances ableistic, right? That doesn't consider 
the lives of those who are living with a disability. And so I, I had to do a lot of inner work. I did inner work with uh, therapy, physical therapy, et cetera. And um, I'll never forget an important conversation that I was having with my wife. Uh, I, I was at probably the lowest that I have felt uh, since the accident. And I say, I, I just don't, I don't think I have anything else to offer. I was in the middle of writing this book and I was uh, at the end of completing my dissertation for a PhD. And she looks at me and I have tears in my eyes. I remember this day and she says, you may not be able to move around, but you still can use your mind. And maybe God wants you to just use that. Those words were like a breath of fresh air. Uh, and it caused me to make these uh, mental shifts in my mind. That service isn't just always physical. Service can be in the way we show up uh, with how we think and how we uh, voice things. But it's also a, a calling can be uh, the way in which you give yourself space to heal. And then doing that in a public setting um, sometimes can be very, uh, you can feel embarrassing and it can feel very fragile and vulnerable. But for me, I think God's grace for me was that um, I was able to make that mental shift, not to see my worth as being defined by movement, but my worth as being like, I'm worthy just because I have breath in my lungs. And I wanted to continue to lean in and serve in a way, even though I couldn't physically move. So that's that's what was redeem, redeeming for me. We can't go any further without telling about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit, but actually I, I want to come back to, to your accident and recovery here as we you know dive into the book. So this new book, All God's Children, this book confronts the buried history of the struggles of black people who have faced uh, against injustice. And um, you wrote, you cannot understand people's stories without understanding their history. You cannot understand black people in the present moment without understanding how history has affected them. Ignoring that history can lead to all sorts of misconceptions. Um, I want to pack, you know, several things from this quote, but, but first you, you wrote, your first book was on cultivating love that helps us see others, especially uh, the poor and the unhoused. And the second book was an invitation uh, for power, uh, the power of mobilizing and acting together to seek justice. What, what were the influences that shaped this, this new book? Yeah. I remember, um, I was, I was invited to give this talk. Um, it was in a predominantly white setting made up of mostly, uh, uh, you know, mostly majority culture churches, uh, white pastors, 
uh, nonprofit organizations who had uh, white leadership, etc. I literally uh, walked through the doors and because I do uh, work in close proximity to those who are unhoused and impoverished, sometimes I dress in uh, jeans and a hoodie and t-shirts and uh, I always have my book bag on, etc. And so I'm invited to speak. I show up to this building I had never been to before. I walk through the doors and immediately I am greeted with uh, not with welcome, not with uh, um, compassion. I was greeted with like suspicion, right? Um, everybody else was walking through the doors, which were mostly white men and uh, nobody was being stopped, et cetera. And so two persons come up to me and they're like, ask me, do I, did I belong here? Was I in the right place? And all of those things. And it, sometimes it's like, do I just like brush that aside or um, I'm like, is this really happening in this moment? And so I say, no, I'm uh, actually in the right place. Uh, and I go into the uh, service. Obviously, they didn't know I was uh, the keynote speaker. And I always do what I um, do when I go to give a talk somewhere. I sit in the back of the room because I just I love to like look around and see people and just kind of uh, get a pulse on, you know, the, the environment, et cetera. And so I'm sitting in the back, these two people are still watching me and they're describing me or reading my bio from stage. And so I take my book up bag off and I'm starting to head to the stage. These same two people started following me <laughs> almost, almost to the, 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 to the, uh, to the front of the stage until they realized that I was the person there to speak. You know what I was there to speak on, Andy? I was there to speak on compassion. Here it is, I'm a black man in this environment. And um, in many ways, still feeling unseen, but giving space, given this space to talk about compassion. And one of the reasons why I write that quote is because, you know, to really understand someone's history and to understand their story and to understand them as a person. If you're saying that you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, or you also have to love uh, the neighborhood that has shaped that neighbor and also be concerned with the issues that are faced uh, by that neighborhood, which the neighbor emerges from. And, you know, there have been many times just on the personal level where I haven't felt seen. I've been uh, looked at with suspicion. You know, I have multiple degrees, uh, lead a nonprofit organization, but it always does something to me when somebody walks across the street because I'm too tall or, you know, I'm asked to repeat things uh, or question about my intellect or my ability to contribute because I, I have long hair or, you know, just some of those surface things. And that's not even talking about uh, some of the hi historical factors that are still shaping the way in which people show up today and mistreat their neighbors. And so when I when I talk about story, uh, one of the reasons why it's so important is because when I meet someone in the context of our organization who is unhoused, I'm not looking at where they are and what they do not have to dictate whether or not I show them the love of God. I get a chance to be proximate in a way that causes me to understand their, their story, 
their background, what has shaped them, how they arrived in their plight, you know, uh, some of their struggles, their dreams, their hopes, their fears, their aspirations. I'm I'm really interested in in loving the total neighbor that God has before me. And when it comes to the subject of, of, of racial matters, I think that the disconnect has been we haven't gotten proximate enough to know uh, our neighbor. And then we haven't taken that this step further to really know the history that has shaped their neighbor. Yeah, kind of returning to um, that, that quote uh, a moment ago, you, you argued ignoring the history of Black people can lead to all sorts of misconceptions. I, I realized the question I'm about to ask we could dedicate an entire podcast series to. Um, but what are some of the most common misconceptions about Black people's history and lived experience? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I'm starting to see a trend on right now is um, this this very intentional and strategic attack against erasing um, the history of of black folks uh, in school systems, whether it be uh, through book bans. I was just. Um, hanging out with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's daughter, uh, Bernice King, Dr. Bernice King. And she was talking about how uh, there are certain parts of the country, uh, even within school systems that have banned the speeches that her father gave during the civil rights movement um, to talk about the beloved community, to, to cast this vision of having a dream where um, people could stand in solidarity with one another without being judged uh, by their skin color, uh, but be, being really defined by the, the content of their character, right? Uh, I talked to my, my grandmother, even still to this day, who is 91 years old, Andy, uh, and very cognizant and sharp. Uh, she just recently visited me, and I view her as like a living historical epistle. And some of the neighborhoods that we even drive around in today, she vividly remembers when black people couldn't work in certain stores or visit museums or uh, be uh, considered someone who was able to teach in a university. Uh, she talks to me specifically about how that criminal framing of black and brown persons in specifically in the United States still is in existence today when this land was perpetuated by the 400 years of enslavement and Jim Crowism and discrimination has kind of been cultivated. And one of the missing things that I think contributes to this is because we haven't allowed ourselves to fully engage and sit with uh, Black history in a way where we value it, but we also allow it to show us ways in which our society and culture are still perpetuating uh, discriminatory uh, frames and um, uh, you know uh, defining people based upon their skin color as opposed to really understanding the history that has shaped the people. And then even some of the contributions that have been made by uh, racist institutions. And so for me, when I talk about um, you know being proximate to someone's story, I'm talking about really allowing yourself 
to sit with their narratives and uh, centering yourself in uh, decentering yourself in a way that allows space for those narratives to exist and be unedited. Does that make sense, Andy? Mm-hmm. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we're here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. You know, with the, the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, among many others, the, the country came to this flashpoint of, of awakening that racism is not a past experience, but a lived experience from, you know, for, for black and brown people. Um, there was so much energy and, and and movement around real change. And then, you know, white people strike back. It, it, it came in the form, as you were alluding to uh, just moments ago, these anti-critical race theory, uh, theory champions, the, the removal of certain events from history books, um, and white people doing what white people do. Um, but I, I don't want to focus on these white people. There are many, and I'm going to include myself in this group, that want to be part of bringing about racial equity to our world, but maybe don't realize they still have a bias towards Black and brown neighbors. Can you give us an insight into some of the most common forms of unconscious bias to this subset of white people? Yeah. That's um, interesting that you say that. I think um, bias is one of those things that um, can can kind of emanate out of like environments uh, uh, being in close proximity to people who have displayed these things. Um, it can come through auditory and visual uh, types of learning, uh, things that we have seen throughout our lives. Uh, in our cultural context uh, that, you know, in many ways, if we're not constantly, uh, you know, checking ourselves around, uh, you know, what we've, what we've seen and what we've allowed to be um, embedded in us in, in, in many ways, then sometimes that does show up unconsciously. Um, 
you know, it was Patricia Hill Collins that said, um, you know, that we think that bias is just like always overt that, uh, you know, it's the calling someone uh, out of their name in a de derogatory term or, um, you know, it's, you know, uh, it, it's something that's just like really overt and and we kind of sweep that under the uh, under the rug. And what she's arguing is that racism ex itself doesn't just magically go away because we refuse to like uh, have like focus on the language that is just like oh overt and everybody knows like um, oh wow like this person is someone who holds a position that is derogatory towards black and brown people. What she's arguing is that we have to be intentional about doing that internal work. Um, we need to check our explicit bias. Um, these are ways in which we, uh, you know, we kind of like hold these assumptions about a group of people um, where we uh, think this certain perspective because it 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 probably has been shaped by you know our environment and what we've been around. Um, you have implicit bias, like when we make these certain uh, assumptions, right? Like there have been times I've walked into environments where, um, you know, because I'm six two and I have like a a lot of people will automatically assume that I play a sport <laughs> or that I'm a basketball player or like some of these things, um, which can come off very hurtful and harmful. Uh, you have attentional uh, bias, right? Uh, and what I'm talking about here is is, is mostly when we uh, have this tendency to prioritize, um, you know, this, this certain type of uh, stimuli over others. So attentional uh, bias is, attentional bias has to do with uh, being around a certain group of people. So like I talk about this in a book, uh, uh, there, were one, there was one time I was going to this Christian conference with a group of uh, believers, right? And so we're about to enter into a space to worship Jesus. Um, and uh, in many scriptures throughout the Bible, Jesus is talking about himself as being a, a person that roams from place to place. You know, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And so we come across a group of people who were impoverished and the group that I was with, which was mostly majority, did not pay attention to um, that group. And as a matter of fact, one of the in the group says that I feel afraid uh, of in uh, of being in this area, and so like diverted their attention away from a group of people that could have been engaged and noticed and acknowledged some of the things that I talk about in uh, my book I See You, and given that that special care of attention to, um, and I think sometimes we miss opportunities to show up and really be proximate to people because we feel uncomfortable with being in the space of people that uh, we may fear. You know, confirm, confirmation bias, you brought up George Floyd. I, I'll never forget all on social media and environments that I was in that people somehow believed 
that George Floyd deserved, uh, you know, to pass away in their rhetoric, not understanding the pain and the trauma that that was causing. I often say uh, this sometimes that, you know, when a black man is, uh, you know, violently uh, murdered uh, in a situation that sometimes involves law enforcement officers, he he dies two deaths. You know, first it's in his physical body, and then it's a character assassination, right? That happens afterwards. And I think that, um, you know, during the confirmation bias phase, we're only looking uh, to to like allow those narratives that align with our positioning uh, to dictate or determine how much or how how little empathy that we give towards other people, right? We only want to uh, read things that align with how we think. We only want to, uh, you know, be around people who are talking the same way that we're talking. Um, and there's a, a, a TED talk that was given called the single story narrative. And I think that is closely aligned with this single story narrative framing, right? When we, we don't allow ourselves to venture out and engage with new information that may be out of our our worldview or our experience. And I think, um, you know, there's so many types of, or, or forms of bias um, that kind of cause us to be at a distance. But the thing I'm really trying to do in this book, Andy, is really push people to be closer to their neighbors. Um, that if you say you love your neighbor, that you have to have a heart um, and compassion to be able to stand with that neighbor, to love that neighbor, um, to have cognitive uh, proximity uh, and physical proximity, uh, to really have a heart uh, to want to understand that neighbor's story, that neighbor's social location, that neighbor's history in a way where you understand that loving that neighbor is loving all aspects of that neighbor, and that glorifies God. This book includes a lot of stories because, um, as you said, helping it helps gives understanding, um, you know, people's uh, lives. So that the story um, you tell often include those that are experiencing homelessness. Uh, a 2020 Housing and Urban Development report said that um, black uh, people make up nearly half of the homeless population, despite comprising only 13 percent of the population. And the study also found that 52 yeah. percent of homeless families uh, were black. Homelessness is homelessness is not something that anyone should have to experience. However, it should also not be disproportionately experienced by one race. Can can you you know uh, give us uh, some shape into uh, how this uh, you know is set up? What 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 about an unjust system leads to this disproportion? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a great question. Well, firstly, uh, most. Sociologists, political scientists, they uh, say that there are two mass homelessness eras in the U.S., right? Um, the first mass homelessness era happens around uh, the Great Depression, right? Um, so you have this era of Great Depression in the United States where, you know, there's an economic downturn that resulted in widespread poverty and an unemployment uh, leading to a significant increase in homelessness itself. So many people lose their jobs, their homes, their savings, you know, forcing them to live in 
what people know now as tent cities and encampments. What um, people don't know that majority of the people who were living in encampments during this time were actually uh, veterans, you know, um, looking for work, uh, trying to uh, grapple and pull things together and resources uh, for their families during these times. The, these these encampments during that time period was were called Hoovervilles. Um, the second era of mass homelessness happens uh, during the 1970s, and it's uh, kind of known as more of the contemporary or chronic period of homelessness. This is what we find ourselves uh, in today, where, you know, during the 70s and the 80s, you had deinstitutionalization, uh, the closure of mental health facilities, lack of affordable housing, um, uh, widespread poverty, uh, you have a lot of substance abuse um, that contributed to like this kind of modern era of homelessness, right? So when I look at it, I look at this and the, the homelessness itself is talked in more of like general sense. But I don't think that there's uh, two eras, Andy. I actually think there's an era that predates um, the first era, which happened during the Great Depression. And I would argue that homelessness started with the Middle Passage uh, when Africans were forced uh, uh, onto ships by the millions, you know, and brought to the New Americas and unhoused from their home and their native land. I think homelessness happens uh, in, you know, uh, and when indigenous people who were native to this land were, uh, you know, murdered and and uh, we see all of this genocide and they were displaced. And, you know, I think they were unhoused from the land that they call their own. And so homelessness for me is connected to both enslavement and genocide. That starts our country, right? And then uh, you uh, fast forward, we just celebrated Juneteenth. Um, which happened in 1865 uh, when, you know, those who were enslaved in Galveston, Texas, hears of their emancipation, right? Right. And then three years later, uh, the ratification of the 13th Amendment, uh, you know, because, you know, there were farmers and uh, former plantation owners who were angry that uh, those who they were benefiting from in their enslavement uh, were finally free. And so, you know, here comes the KKK, here comes convict leasing, here comes um, black codes, here comes uh, Jim Crowism, uh, some of those discriminatory things. Now we fast forward back to the Great Depression. Did you know uh, during the Great Depression is when uh, Jim Crowism really got thick? Uh, you have to ask yourself, where were Black people during that time? Well, also, uh, redlining started around the 1930s, where Black people were uh, denied uh, FHA loans to get access to housing, um, where Black people were concentrated in neighborhoods where there were uh, lots and lots of poverty. Uh, they weren't giving, uh, we weren't given um the same amount of benefits. Uh, in 1932, you have the 
uh, first protests uh, for homelessness that happens in Washington, D.C. You know who were protesting? World War I veterans, which were mo mostly uh, white. Um, because they were protesting, they wanted, they were called the bonus owning. They wanted their subsidies. They wanted their uh, promises that were being promised to them. You know what happens years later? The GI Bill passes, you know, in the 1940s. You know who benefit from, benefits from that? White soldiers. Not soldiers who were Black, who even fought in wars. Uh, so soldiers got access to housing, employment opportunities, business loans, good education, all of those things. Black people were still being discriminated against. Then that ushers us into the civil rights movement, right? Where people uh, were wrestling with segregation and um, discrimination and all of those things. And you have to ask yourself, where are Black people during this time? Um, why is there concentrated poverty? Why were there lines drawn around neighborhoods, not given access to good health care and education and all of those things, you know? That sort of history sets up us to understand why we see so many uh, Black people wrestling with not having any access to housing and land in the chronic uh, era of mass homelessness, right? Which is this, uh, which I would define as a third. And I believe, Andy, that we're headed into a fourth, um, which I would say would be the era of unaffordability. Uh, because we're starting to see around the country uh, more and more people who have never been unhoused before will actually end up unhoused because they can no longer afford to stay in the places that have uh, inflated housing costs. And so um, that history is important. And one of the reasons I talk about homelessness in relationship to, um, you know, race, because race and class have intersections. There's a lot of intersections between uh, race and class. And while I was serving in my organization and while I was showing up and, you know, being proximate to our unhoused neighbors, um, I started to see parallels in what our unhoused neighbors were actually uh, facing, you know, being criminalized for existing in public spaces, uh, being overlooked and mistreated for not having an address or experiencing homelessness, uh, being socially excluded for being unhoused, being feared, being discriminated against. And my own experience as a Black person, as a Black pastor, as a Black scholar, as a Black leader, sometimes I'm criminalized for exist existing in public spaces, right? Um, ever had the police called on you for walking down the street? I have, you know, uh, being overlooked and being mistreated for being Black. I, I can recall several times when I was in uh, predominantly white spaces and people would uh, come up to me and ask if I was the janitor because there was this lens or this framing to suggest that I was lesser than, right? Uh, I've been socially excluded. I've been feared just for having Black skin. You know, I've been discriminated against. And so I see these parallels in these different types of experiences. And while I talk about uh, history uh, as it relates to Black history, I'm also grappling with this notion in the book of trying to understand my own history because I didn't get a chance to learn Black history throughout my K through 12 experience. This is something that I had to pick up, you know, post 
K through 12, where I uh, started to collect and amass a, a, a lot of books that spoke to my existential experiences. And it kind of gave me some deep roots and understanding of my own, uh, my own history. And now I'm, you know, in this place where I'm trying to communicate that there is this real sense and urgency. We need to understand all parts of history in a way that allows us to stand in solidarity with other people. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. I know we got to let you go, uh, and there's so much in this book I, I wish we could get to, and for those that will have a chance to, to pick it up and, and to read it, you cover uh, so many different layer complexities around these things. Um, you've alluded to so much of it here. But you know, one of the things I love most about your writing is that you don't deconstruct without cultivating avenues for people to reconstruct. You, you don't highlight uh, racial improprieties without um, giving them practical steps to change. So one of the most powerful invitations to change is around uh, practicing proximity. W what do you mean by that? And, and what does that practically look like? Yeah, actually, like, I, I look at this within the context of book, um, I look at this in the context of the book through a solidarity framework lens. Um, and, and I give like a practical call to action in both a theological understanding. So, you know, I talk about lamenting with others and creating space for people to lament and then genuinely being close and proximate to that lamentation in a way that causes you to lament with others. Uh, listen, listening to others, and it's not in the way that we uh, traditionally think of listening, you know, because sometimes we listen uh, with this notion to want to censor or edit someone's uh, story, but it's really about creating these types of healthy spaces where people feel comfortable enough to share, you know, it's, it's learning from others, it's immersing yourself in the context of, a, of another, like uh, the number of conversations I have sometimes with people who want to uh, be allies or stand in solidarity with others. And then when we look at, you know, how much time they're actually spending in proximity with the community that they want to be in solidarity with, it's very minimum. And so like this immersion process orients you into this rhythmic way of being proximate to others is showing compassion and empathy, not just in, in a charitable way, but literally um, uh, with a relational foundation. It's standing alongside others and then it's using your voice. I think that is, you know, a small framework that I just like breeze through, but I think it gives us some sense of understanding of what it actually means to be in relationship with others, what it actually means to stand in solidarity with others, and what it actually means to truly know people. 
um, you know, because the God of the Bible says that he knows the hairs, the numbers of hairs on our heads. And, you know, I know we'll never know the numbers of hairs on our neighbor's head, but it it gives us like this framework of, wow, like we serve a God that close and we follow a Jesus that gave himself, um, gave himself in a way where he was that close that I want to model that type of closeness and proximity in the ways in which God and Jesus displays for displays for us in the Bible. Uh, so I'm truly getting the chance to know my neighbor. Just so we're clear, I'm, I am kind of getting to the age where you might be able to count the number of hairs in my head. So, um, <laughs> there, there's that. Our guest is Dr. Terrence Lester. The book is All God's Children. Uh, you can learn more about Lester's work at lovebeyondwalls.org. Uh, Lester, it's always a, a joy talking with you. Thank you for challenging us to see that the small actions might not appear to do much to save the world. But for us and those we serve, they can have an enormous impact. Thank you. We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV updated edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.